Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Before I get into the episode, I want to highlight that I'm still hiring for four open roles in policy research, government relations, and communications at a new climate policy initiative I recently started called Carbon Removal Canada. So if you or someone you know is interested in seeing Canada rapidly and responsibly scale up carbon removal, check out our open positions at carbonremoval.ca. Today, we are going to hop over the Atlantic and talk about the carbon removal innovation and policy landscape in Europe. The EU is the world's third largest economy, and it's well positioned to have a major impact on the future of carbon removal policy and innovation. I wanted to understand Europe's potential in terms of what's in the innovation pipeline, as well as what systemic gaps need to be addressed to make Europe a carbon removal powerhouse. I'll be speaking to someone launching a new initiative in Europe to help realize that goal. And I'm hoping there are lessons here for other countries and jurisdictions looking to achieve climate goals through carbon removal in a post-Inflation Reduction Act world. Finally, I want to highlight that today we are publishing the 20th episode of the Carbon Curve podcast. And with thanks to Lucia Simonelli, who has offered some of her time to produce the show, we have some great interviews lined up for this quarter. So thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. And if you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcast app or at carboncurve.substack.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Marion Kruger. He's the co-lead of the Remove Accelerator and decarbonization lead at SusLab. SusLab, or the Sustainability in Business Lab, is a think and do tank launched by the Chair for Sustainability and Technology at ETH Zero. The lab was founded in 2016 with a mission to bring sustainability research into the real world through hands-on industry projects. The Remove Accelerator, formerly known as the Carbon Removal Climate Accelerator before its rebrand, is Europe's first and only accelerator program purely focused on CDR startups. Originated as a project at ETH Zurich Sustainability and Business Lab, the non-profit, non-equity program has supported more than 60 European early-stage CDR startups since its start in 2021, with coaching, expert matchmaking, ecosystem access, and non-dilutive capital. Marion Kruger has spent his whole career in impact entrepreneurship, first as a venture developer at the German green utility, Energy, before founding his own startup, UCARE, after its acquisition, he went on to join ETH Zurich Sustainability in Business Lab as decarbonization lead and co-founded and now leads the Remove Accelerator. Marion holds two master's degrees, one in education and one in behavioral economics and sustainability from the London School of Economics. Marion, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm a great fan. Wonderful. So you lead the decarbonization work at the Sustainability in Business Lab at ETH in Zurich. Give us a bit of background on SusLab. You know, what's its history, structure, and what are you guys working on right now? Yeah, happy to. So indeed, we're located at ETH Zurich, which is a big research university in Switzerland, sometimes dubbed Europe's MIT. Professor Volker Hoffmann, who leads the research chair on sustainability and technology, realized somehow in 2016 that the traditional way of academic knowledge transfer into the real world through publishing papers did not really achieve the desired impact and was also too slow. And that, at the same time, the urgent action on sustainability issues in industry was becoming increasingly clear. 
So that really was the impetus for the formation of the Sustainability Business Lab. It's quite a unique organization that I haven't seen anywhere else because it's located at the university, but it does not do any primary research and it really is engaged in hands-on projects. Uh, we're organized in two separate streams. One is focused more on circular economy. They're mostly on plastics and food waste. And the other one is in decarbonization where we mostly work in, in hard to abate sectors. So it's waste to energy, maritime shipping, cement. And this also includes our work on carbon removal. And we typically select projects with a very systemic perspective in mind. We only do what we believe is necessary and that no one else is doing wants to do apparently yet. And the projects maybe as a last thing, they typically operate in this triangle of business policy and technology. And depending on the project, the focus might be more on one than on the other. That's very cool. So let's zoom in on the carbon removal work. What are the main focus areas and what are some of the projects that the team is currently undertaking and has taken on in the past? So we really got to work on carbon removal because we had ongoing projects with the Swiss waste energy industry. We particularly worked with one very progressive waste energy plant in Switzerland, doing a feasibility study on the complete CCS chain from capture of a transport to storage in Celine Aquifers in the North Sea. And in this context, we also looked at business models and business cases. And we quickly realized that, hey, there's a 50% biogenic waste fraction of the waste that is being incinerated. And if we managed to capture, transport, and store that, we could realize significant amounts of carbon removal really as a rather low-hanging fruit. So that was also the, the spark for our carbon removal work. I think this, by the way, a point that, that I wanted to make and that often overlooked in discussions around CDR that there are existing facilities where waste biomass is already being incinerated or can be incinerated in the future. So even cement kilns, which we typically consider as a major point source emitter of forces CO2, which is true, if those are going to be equipped with CCS anyways, then we will be able to realize substantial amounts of carbon removal with more or less little extra additional capex. I think that's really something to consider when we look at how we direct biogenic waste streams going forward. But that just as an aside, how we ended up working on CDR and we've engaged in a number of projects ever since. Again, we always come from a very systemic angle and ask ourselves, say, what are the gaps that need to be closed in order for this value chain to really work? And one of those examples is maybe if we look at CO2 infrastructure. So it's not the most sexy topic, but it is absolutely crucial for us to decarbonize and to realize substantial CR volumes in the future. And for that to happen, we need CO2 pipelines. There's no question around that, especially in a you know very fragmented emitter landscape such as Europe. So we were engaged in one project where we scoped how such a network, CO2 pipeline network could look in Switzerland and how much it would cost. We're also engaged in a number of projects that do that on a EU level. Another project um, that we're currently engaged in is to create a sort of landscape of certification standards, MRV standards for carbon removal, and to assess whether they follow the best practices for life cycle assessment. We're doing that together with life cycle assessment experts at DTH and also this was Ministry of the Environment. I love to focus on addressing some of the systemic gaps that are necessary to scale carbon removal. I, I think they don't get enough attention. And when they do, it lacks attention from folks who are really innovation-oriented and entrepreneurial. And so if you can combine that entrepreneurial ethos with the need to close some of these systemic gaps, we might be able to accelerate progress on scaling carbon removal. What are 
some exciting future plans for the lab going forward. Yeah, so I think one current project that I'm very, very excited about is called DemoLab Karma, where we are shipping a thousand tons of biogenic CO2 from Switzerland to Iceland to start using CopFix technology as a demonstration project. It's being led by Viola Becatinia, DTH, uh, and we're one of the leading groups working on that. It's sometimes dubbed, and this is Eli Mitchell Larson from CarbonNet calling it the CO2 caravan, because we really ship one isotainer at a time to just learn whether it's possible and what challenges we run into. And there's a number of challenges that indeed happen that you'd never think of when you just do your desk research about it. So I'm very excited about that and maybe how we can look towards upscaling that. We're now talking a thousand tons, but we very soon need to be talking 10,000, 100,000, a million tons. So what are the scale-up barriers that you know we need to look at and, and how can we approach them and attack them? In the future, I'm uh, sort of going to hand over the leadership of SUSLAB actually to my colleague, and I'm going to focus 100% on the Remove Accelerator, which I'm sure we're also going to get to. But CR is going to continue to play a very, very crucial role at SUSLAB. There's plenty of gaps to be closed if we look at, at the space systemically. One of them certainly is we need to make sure that there's more CR supply ideas coming to be explored. And that's certainly one of the future projects that we have in the pipeline. That's really cool. And it's great to see this innovation and for banking around carbon removal in Europe. And I think there's a lot that can be gained from what you all learn in Europe when we think about it as well in a US or elsewhere in the world kind of context. Let's get into the Remove Accelerator. Can you give me some history on the Remove Accelerator and what its function is? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So it actually sprang out of our activities at Tesla. I mentioned the encounter with CR in our West Energy project. And then we really looked a lot more closely at the CER space. We saw, you know, the volumes that the IPCC was telling us we'll need. And we looked left and right. And we just didn't know where those volumes were supposed to come from. And we also saw a virtual lack of, of any support ecosystem in place in Europe for this completely new and nascent industry that entrepreneurs were trying to navigate. And again, from a systemic perspective, we believed that this was a gap that needed to be filled and no one else was, you know, seemingly willing to fill it. So we did. Um, we devised a program, looked for funding and then kicked off our first batch of startups in 2021. And since then, we've supported more than 60 European startups working on carbon removal. Typically, they come at pre-seed to seed level from a maturity perspective. But we've also had teams that joined a lot later down the road. They all come for our very distinct carbon removal focus, of course. And in terms of the startups we select, we're agnostic when it comes to the CR method. So we have everything from more nature-based solutions, if you want, to more engineered ones, as well as sort of the enabling environment. And um, we then support them with one-on-one -on -one coaching, with expert engagement regarding policy, uh, technology, also customers, investors, of course. And uh, we also provide a bit of non-networked capital. And it indeed started as a project at SUSLAP, as the Carbon Engle Climate Accelerator, because it was initially co-funded by the European Union, namely by Climate Kick, which is the innovation climate program at the EU. We're very grateful for that support. And now going forward, we've gone through a bit of a shift. We've rebranded as Rents Remove, and we have a standalone program, which needs to be non-profit, non-equity, so we don't take any stake in the startups that we support, because we really believe in this systemic impact perspective on this. ETH Soft Lab is going to be the core partner of the program, and we have great supporters, such as the Grantham Foundation, Carbon Pool Partners, or the Dune Foundation at you know, believe in our mission and supporting these and startup entrepreneurs. Yeah, those are some great partners to have on board. And can you tell me a little bit more about some of the companies that are currently involved? I know you mentioned your tech neutral, so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about 
what companies are currently benefiting from this program? Yeah, sure. So as I said, I think we're agnostic to the type of car removal, but of course we're very aware of the uh, differences with regards to durability, to the relevance of co-benefits and in general, the quality of carbon removal. We believe certainly it's a portfolio approach. So all of them definitely demand our support. What we've seen is though, there's a trend from the first to the third cohort. We've seen a shift from more nature-based solutions to more tech solutions. So the first go around both in applications as well as in the selection, we had a lot of teams from forestry or soil carbon sequestration. And now we move more and more towards startups that come from more engineered solutions. Although I do not like that differentiation necessarily a bit. We really have everything. So from uh, drone-based ecosystem restoration to enhanced weathering using return concrete to direct ocean capture to next generation direct air capture. And it's very exciting to see that that spectrum of solutions also broadening. And I'm, I'm very sure that there are solutions which we cannot even think about right now that are uh, hopefully going to apply in the calls to come. We actually have a call open in April. So I'm very much looking to see if companies will, will see apply. Yeah, that's really great. And it sounds like you're really driving innovation in carbon removal in Europe, which is really cool to see. What are some of the bigger challenges that you're seeing with early stage carbon removal companies? What are some of the challenges that they're currently facing? Yeah, I think there are a few. One that's certainly top of mind for a lot of people in the space is the financing question, right? There are just these valleys of death that sort of has to go through and that still currently there's little financing available, especially on non-dilutive sites. That's why we also try to step in and provide a bit of that, but we certainly cannot do the heavy lifting. The second one is, and we see that continuously with the startups where we support is, the space is just so nascent, so there are, there are no value chains in place yet. So a startup necessarily needs to do everything. Whereas as an entrepreneur, you should typically try to focus because there's already so much on your plate. And then if you try to build up the complete value chain, that is just so much harder. Let's just think about MRV, right? That shouldn't be something that you as an entrepreneur should also be developing besides your current removal technology, which in itself is already so, so, so difficult, right? So that certainly is one of the challenges. And I think then... The challenge more from a business model perspective is that, and this might be a bit of a hot take, I believe that currently sort of carbon removal credits are a B2C value proposition, which is being sold to a B2B audience. What I mean by that is if a company is generating a carbon removal credit that is not being sort of used in, in the business model of the procuring company, say, I don't know. Very simple example. If I'm a tomato pulp processor, I buy tomatoes as my feedstock, right? And I do that because it is a feedstock in my realization of tomato pulp. And that in effect has an effect on my bottom line, right? Because it either allows me to buy better quality tomatoes, so my produce is better, or I can do it at a lower price. If I'm a procurer of carbon removal, I buy that, but not because it has an inherent part of my business model. It does not affect my bottom line directly. So it is much more of a B2C value proposition in the sense that I consume such a credit either by making a claim, a contribution claim with it, or a compensation claim with it. And it might have secondary effects on my bottom line, but certainly not primary ones. So that's why I believe it really is a B2C value proposition that our startups are trying to sell to a B2B audience, which makes something very hard, customer discovery, right? Typically what you do is if I'm a tomato grower and I manage to sell it to a customer A, then typically, you know, standard entrepreneurship 
advice would be to then find other customer A's to sell it to. But just because a clown had bought from me a credit doesn't mean that I can now go to Adyen, which is also a you know, client competitor out of the Netherlands, just assuming that I solve a problem for them because it just isn't a problem for them, right? There's no incentive for them to buy. And it also makes the demand very vulnerable. Just because Klarna bought this year doesn't mean they'll buy next year because there's, again, no clear effect on the bottom line. And I think it's one of the fundamental challenges that card removal entrepreneurs still have these days. So let's dig into that a little bit, because I think that's a good point, right? I think that it's hard to make that argument that a certain carbon removal activity is relevant to your line of business. How do we better integrate carbon removal solutions into the primary core functions of businesses so that a carbon removal entrepreneur can go and sell to a Klarna competitor or whoever and it actually makes sense. I'm going to ask you to solve this problem for <laughs> us today. But actually, I'm just curious to know what would what, what are some of the things that might make sense to change in order to better integrate and better align incentives? Because from my view, I think that's critically important as we get to a place where we have more risk-averse buyers in the carbon removal market. They're going to need a different pitch, a different story about why they should be getting involved. And I think they're not going to see the same brand lift that the Stripe and Shopify's and others have seen. So I think the issue you're raising here amongst the others that you brought up are important. What do we need to do to get around this challenge? I think the only way to do this at scale is for carbon removal to move into a compliant regime, right? It needs to affect the bottom line. And because carbon removal inherently is not a product that can feed into a lot of existing business models, it's has to be a cost factor and it will only become that if it is regulated and, and become a compliance market. I agree that likely the brand value that some of the first movers have gotten, I think that's slowly receding. You probably can still get away with that if you weren't the first ones in your category. Um, so if you're the first uh, cement producer buying removal credits and maybe using them for a contribution claim, right? That might still work. But also I think we need to lower barriers for buyers to come to the space. Robert Hoogland wrote a great piece about this, which I can only second, right? We need to make it easier to buy. We need to make sure that standards are uniform and agree on what quality means. And we also need to make sure that it's clear what companies can do with the removal credit and what they cannot do. And maybe lastly, and I think this is up to us all in the space, is to ensure that, you know, there, especially after the Vera incident, that there is renewed trust in carbon removal, you know, just by proxy. I think it also definitely affected us as a space as well, even though, you know, very little of the credits were indeed removal credits. So I think we need to make sure that there's plenty of trust, that there's no fear by a procurer not to end up at the wrong side of such a story. And quite frankly, to also prepare the space for non-deliveries, which are inevitably going to happen just to make sure that that backlash will not come too heavy down on us. Because, you know, I think no one's talking about it yet, but inherently in these early carbon removal technologies, there is the risk of failure fundamentally. Otherwise it wouldn't be a VC business. So we need to start speaking about it because I don't think we are right now. And if we want to make this a mainstream market, then we need to make sure that the market is prepared to handle failures. And currently, I don't think it is. That is such a good point. And I, you know, I can't agree more. I feel like 
we kind of need to prepare corporate buyers, policymakers, other key stakeholders with the reality, like you said, that there are going to be some failures in this market. There is also, and I've heard folks like Peter Miner was uh, previously at Carbon 180 talk about this. There's also going to be, you know, situations that involve fraud and bad actors. And like any industry, that's going to be a thing. You know, everyone I've met in the carbon removal world so far seems like a very well-intentioned person, but I know as the market grows, there's going to be some bad actors involved. And, you know, if we're not clear-eyed about that with the people we are asking to invest in this market, they are not going to be able to tolerate that backlash and that's going to set us back very far. And so I think finding a way to weave that message in while also telling these very same people to push the accelerator on investment, that's going to be a very hard line to walk. But I think it's an important one. And I think that kind of brings back to kind of this thinking around carbon removal in a systemic fashion. And maybe we use this opportunity to pivot a little bit over to EU policy and hear about what you think are some of the more kind of exciting country level carbon removal policies or efforts that you're seeing emerge in Europe. And why do you think they matter? Yeah, sure. This is a good segue because I think we're both in agreement that, you know, carbon removal needs to move into a compliance market in order for this to become the market size that we need it to be. I think that's also a general sentiment that is shared between carbon removal policymakers in Europe. Some more explicit than others. Can I jump in on, on that? I yeah, you right. mentioned the compliance market before. And many compliance markets incorporate at present um, what are effectively avoidance-based credits or avoidance-based offsets that are incorporated as part of that system. It is hard enough to get people to get excited about carbon removal within the voluntary market to enjoy the kind of the, the brand lift that comes with that. Let's keep using that term. In a compliance market where the menu is mostly avoided emissions or you know reduced emissions, they have carbon removal right there with it. And if you're in a compliance market, you're really just trying to check the box at this point. And we know carbon removal costs more. So how does carbon removal compete with these other types of credits that are in compliance markets that are part of compliance markets at present and actually get some runway there? It cannot. I don't think it can. And that's why it needs to be either a separate compliance market, say for residual emissions, which, you know, through a compliance regime, you might not be able to compensate differently for, or that there's a clear mechanism in place that incentivizes the use of carbon rules in the existing compliance regime, which might also then outrule the use of others, avoidance-based allowances, for instance. So I think we're still, you know, long way into that direction. I think that's also why maybe coming back to your question, while that is the end goal that a lot of the national governments, and I think also the EU level, although that, you know, there's little explicit communication around that is thinking about, there of course is this gap from where we now stand to where a compliance regime, however that might look, comes into play. And the different national countries in the EU are working on it in different ways. I think the most progressive one actually is Luxembourg, which you wouldn't think of as a CDR heavyweight, but they actually have a feed-in tariff for direct payment for performance in carbon wool. The upside here is International projects are actually eligible for this. The downside, those projects need to be 50% owned by Luxembourg entities. And that's, I think, something that we'll see on and on going forward. Climate policy and carbon policy is also industrial policy. 
Next example, Sweden. That's maybe rather well-known. They have done a reverse auction scheme for BEX credits. The government here is then a direct procurer. Why? Maybe the limitation to BEX, because Sweden has the highest biogenic CR potential in Europe. They have a lot of waste energy plants and also the pulp and paper industry, which is basically 100% biogenic CO2 coming out of that. So again, certainly favors the more domestic solutions in its way. The UK, interestingly, is working on something called the greenhouse gas removal business model, which has just gone through public consultation. The final format is a bit unclear. What I'm hearing is that it's sort of going to be a potential for a carbon contract for difference route uh, with a strike price also on carbon removal. So there's quite some activity in the UK, actually, which has the luxury of not being part of the EU. Finally, one potential advantage of Brexit, maybe. And then the Swiss have been a pioneer in bilateral agreements with other countries around the world under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. The Swiss actually have a very clear goal on, on carbon removal. They're one of the most explicit ones. In the world, they say 2050 will need two megatons of carbon removal internally, likely mostly through BEX, and then five megatons procured from countries around the world with a favor towards DAC. And in order for those transactions to happen, you sort of need to set the mechanisms in place and Article 6 is one of them. Yeah, that's great. And, and we'll try to provide links to all of that in the show notes because there's some good reading material out there about a lot of the initiatives that you just mentioned. And it sounds like these are some pretty exciting policies that are emerging at the EU level and outside of the EU. What are some of the biggest policy gaps? What do we need to overcome in order to really punch up the policy performance in Europe around carbon removal? Yeah, I think the big elephant in the room in the EU, at least, is the CRCF carbon removal certification framework, which is developed by the EU Commission currently, and it is in expert consultation. It is supposed to sort of regulate and govern the generation and also the use of, of carbon removal credits. And it's not where it needs to be. Unfortunately, the first draft of that that was also published and is now being consulted does not clearly distinguish removals from reductions, which you'd expect from a carbon removal certification framework. It does not stick to the IPCC guidelines when it comes to that or the definition. So that certainly is a shortcoming and gap which needs to be filled. And it also doesn't clearly delineate what carbon removal credits can be used for. So those are the two biggest drawbacks that need to be worked on. And I know plenty of very capable CDR NGOs are working on it in Brussels and beyond. Beyond that, I think maybe two other things. One is about the funding landscape, which I already mentioned a bit earlier. We're talking about the challenges that carbon removal startups face. To cross this value of death, there's certainly insufficient funding available. There's the EU Innovation Fund, which actually is being financed through the compliance mechanism, the EU ETS, the European Emission Trading System. That's heavily oversubscribed by the EU Innovation Fund. It's not only for carbon removal, but for all things climate tech and beyond. So ideally, it would be a dedicated CR financing instrument, just because we talked about the difficulty of going to market for carbon removal, right? That might be different for other climate tech solutions. So that's why a dedicated fund in my my mind makes sense. And I think that the, the, the third aspect is the CR space is evolving so quickly and also the, the methods themselves, they face individual challenges and likely challenges that we don't even know about yet. So I think one of the big bottlenecks is going to be permitting and regulatory processes around, you know, the stuff that we know already, but also the things that we don't know yet we'll have to face. You know, 
examples around this that we know about are the London Protocol and the CCS Directive. Things that are very unsexy, but really are go-no-go issues for product developers around carbon removal. Let's just think about all the carbon removal ocean methods that we'll see being started up. You know, I don't think the EU is prepared to regulate all of this in the pace that we need it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think the regulatory environment around carbon removal is still so far in its infancy, it might be even more nascent than the actual uh, industry itself. And, and I think that's going to be a real challenge for a lot of startups as they try to get to commercial scale and beyond. So I'm glad you all are working on it and thinking about how do we overcome some of these potential barriers. You know, EU policy is really interesting for many reasons. You know, one of them is that you have to balance policies that work across different countries and different political systems and work with policies that are developed locally in the context of each country. And it's interesting because that's kind of what we need to do with carbon removal policies globally. Are there any lessons learned from the EU's journey so far that you would highlight that could benefit policy development in other countries? Yeah, I think you're right. The EU actually can serve as sort of a petri dish for a global CR policy. Uh, and what I have seen, and I think we also can take away from it, is that it likely is going to develop in two ways. So we'll see sort of the governance and standard setting happen right now at the EU level. So that is a supranational level, right? It goes beyond domestic interests and, and activities. And ideally, Globally, we will also rather soon than late agree on common frameworks and standards. So I think what here happens in on the EU level, we can take that analogy and think, okay, that might happen at the global level. When it comes to sort of the incentivization schemes and business models and policies, those currently happen on national levels in the EU. And I think this goes back to what I mentioned earlier around climate policy also being industrial policy. I think that will continue to be the case, and we'll see that with the IRA in the U.S. as well, right? So um, countries will favor those CR methods that play into their industrial policy, and vice versa, the industrial policies will incentivize certain CR policies that are just in line with the, the general objectives of a country. Again, Sweden is a good example of this, or Luxembourg as well. But I think we're likely to see that develop globally as well. Maybe then it's not you know, Switzerland versus the U.S., but maybe EU versus the U.S. when it comes to industrial policy. At the EU level, they're already thinking about a European IRA, if you want. Unsure whether carbon removal will play a significant role in that currently in the drafts that have been circulated. Doesn't seem like it. I wish that were the case, but we're not at the final stage yet. But I do think that, yeah, we might be able to take away from that that Standard setting, governance will happen globally. Incentivization policy, business model policy might happen on a more quote-unquote local or at least continent-wide level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This was a really great conversation. It kind of combined my two favorite topics around carbon removal, innovation and policy. And I'm a big fan of the work that you're all doing in taking a systemic view to unblocking some of these barriers to scaling CDR in Europe. And I think there's a lot to learn from your experience as you think about these innovation challenges alongside where some of these systemic pieces need to work in concert. 
So this is really great. I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. How do people get in touch? How do people learn more about what you're working on? Sure, yeah. So with regards to the work we do at SAS Lab, it's sas-lab.ch. You can have a look at the projects we do. We also open source a lot of the reports. There's quite some interesting data. If you're looking at CCS value chains, our price is going to develop how such a project being set up. Hit me up on LinkedIn if you want. And with regards to the accelerator, uh, remove.global is the website. If you wanted to join the accelerator or as a European CR startup, if you wanted to join the ecosystem in Europe, we're also very actively building that. It certainly hasn't happened enough up until now. So happy to hear from you, anyone and everyone working on carbon removal pushing forward. That's wonderful. And it's great to see this vision being realized. This is really exciting stuff. Marion, thank you so much for the time. It was great to have you on the show. 